0: We're going to be learning Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi, the only piece in Hilchos Shvuos, the laws of vows. This is the Rambam Perek Ches Halacha Yud Gimel. The issue that Rab Chaim is dealing with is the same one he addressed in the last piece of Hilchos Ishus in Perek Ches Zayin, which is how do we define a loan and where it's going to be collected from. And particularly this is relevant because you do not make a shvuah a vow, on a loan which is going to be collected from land. So we have to understand what are the criteria to define what is a loan which is collected from land versus what's collected from movable property. And interestingly enough, I don't know if this happens anywhere else in Chidush Rebbe Nochaim HaLevi, but he actually even repeats full sections from the piece in Hilchos Ishus, the last third or so of this piece in Hilchos is almost a copy and paste from the piece in Hilchos Ishus. The Rambam writes, If somebody had a loan that was written in a document and he denied it and he made a shvuah which was false, so still he would not be ...punished with the Shavuos apikadon punishment... ...because since there was a shtar in this situation... ...so when there's a shtar, Nishtabet HaKarka... ...he can collect also from land. So therefore, this is a case of kofer BeKarka... ...the person who denied that he owed the money... ...denied that he owes land. And the Halacha is, there's a general principle... kofer BeKarka Potem ...that someone who denies the situation of land... Does not get punished with Shuasapikadon. So that's why any loan which is done with a shtar, there is no punishment of Shuasapikadon because it always involves land in this transaction because the lender could collect his loan from land. And this comes from the Gemara in Shavuos and Aflamet Zayin that Rabbi Yochanan said that if someone denies money that was borrowed with witnesses, then they would get punished with Shavuos Apikodon. But if there was a shtar, then they're putter. And the reason is because a shtar is Shibut Karkos. A shtar involves land and you don't bring a korban when there's a case of Kfiras Shibut Karkos. So Tosos asks over there, that why is there a distinction between a shtar versus a loan which was done with Adam, with witnesses? Because Rabbi Yochanan himself holds in the Gemara Bab and Babasra Daf Kufain Hei that Shibuddha Do Raisa, that the lien, the ability to collect from land is Do Raisa, which means any loan which is done with witnesses can also collect from land. So why in the Gemara Shvuas is Rabbi Yochanan making a distinction between a loan which has witnesses where ostensibly you don't collect from land versus alone with a star, where you do collect from land when he himself in Babassar holds that any time there's witnesses, certainly if there's a star, you do collect from land. So Tosos answers that we're not dealing with any regular case of alone with witnesses but we're talking about a specific situation where the lender forgave his ability to collect from land so in this situation it actually does not involve land in any way so that's why there would be a shua if the person denied it falsely. Or, in Bab Metzia, he has another similar answer, which is that this happens to be dealing with a borrower who does not own land, so that's why there was no land involved in this situation. So either way, Tosus's position is that in a regular case of a loan with witnesses, according to Rabbi Yochanan, there would be no shvos Apikadon, because that is the same as kfiras Shibud Karkos, that is a loan which could be collected from land. The case where Rabbi Yochanan says that there is a punishment of Shuvah Kodon for denying a loan with witnesses is in a special situation where there was no land involved, either because the lender forgave it or because the borrower doesn't own land. Now, Reb Chaim points out that when the Rambam records this halacha, that a loan with witnesses, there would be shvos he does so without any conditions or limitations attached. So it sounds like the Rambam holds that in all cases of a loan with witnesses... Even if there is land involved in it, still there would not be a punishment of Shavu apikadon. meaning he disagrees with Tosus's approach that it would only be in specific limited situations. And the Rambam has a very expansive view of this halacha that any situation where there isn't a shtar, there would be Shavu apikadon. So, if the Rambam disagrees with Tosus's answer, then how's he gonna to answer Tosus's question? Why is there Shvosapi Kodon on a loan with witnesses when the lender could collect it from land? So, when the borrower denies it, it's Kfiras Shibud Karkoz, he's denying land. So, Rab Chaim says that according to the Rambam, the answer is because even though Shibuda oraisa, meaning according to the Torah, you could collect from land, but the rabbanan changed the rule, they removed that aspect of it, and midrabbanan, you can only collect it from transferable property, from a Taltalin. So, the Rambam looks at it practically and once the Rabbis changed the rule, so now it no longer involves Karka, so we can give the punishment of Shibud Karkos. That's the explanation for it, and Rab Chaim says this makes more sense in the literal reading of the Gemara because the Gemara just says straight that mamun shi'esholav Adim chayev. If there are witnesses, then you're still So it sounds like all instances, not the way Toso said it, that it's only in very limited situations. So that's the Rambam's approach to this Gemara. But, says Rab Chaim, there's still a problem here because if you read the Gemara carefully it doesn't say a loan which has witnesses, which would mean that we're only talking about a situation of a borrower and a lender but it says money which has has witnesses, So this is a much broader category than just milveh. It's not just loans. It's any financial transaction which had witnesses on it. And then the person who owes money denies it. So all of this would be included in the Gemara's leniency that there's no shuvah sapikadon in that case. And an example of this would be, says Rabbi Chaim, the Gemara in Aleph says that if someone sells land and then that land gets collected so the buyer is able to collect the money that's owed to them from land. So that's a clear case where someone owes money to someone else outside of the context of a loan. And it can be collected from land. And Chazal never changed that. So even Midrash Abana, that person could collect from land. And yet the simple reading of the Gemara according to the Rambam would be that even in such a case, if the seller denies owing that money, it would be Shavu even though it involves kfiras Shibud Karkos. So we have to understand why that should be. So in order to explain the Rambam, Reb Chaim develops a conceptual approach. And that is, there's a distinction between two types of Shibud, two types of lien that are created when someone borrows money. One is the Shibud Nechassim, that his possessions, his property, is obligated now to pay back the loan, and that goes both on land and metaltalin. But there's also a shibur ha that he himself, as a human being, is obligated to repay this loan. Now, obviously, he's not going to repay it from his body, so that lien, that shibud, ends up on his possessions too. But that's the primary obligation to repay, is the shibur ha that he is obligated to repay And as a byproduct of that, all his possessions are included in the obligation to repay, meaning his obligation to repay is fulfilled through his possessions, whether it's land or metaltolin, whatever he uses to settle the debt. And this is based almost on an explicit gemara in Babasra, Dafkuf The gemara refers to Shibur HaNechasim, the lien on one's property, that it's Midin Arev. It's like a cosigner. So you see that it's not the actual original obligation, but it's a byproduct of the person's Shibur HaGuf, that they owe money, just as a cosigner is a second level obligation obligation if the original party can't pay back. And Rav Chaim quotes that the Ran in Ksubis, and Perek HaKosev, when he's explaining Rabbeinu Tam's position about whether you could sell a shtar, and the payment that you're owed, so he explicitly goes through a lot of this. Now, based on this, says Rab Chaim, this is going to impact whether we consider something firas shibud karkoz, because if we're dealing with the shibud an the the lien on the property, so that, of course, includes land in the same way that it includes metaltalin. But if we're evaluating the shibud haguf that this person is obligated, so that has nothing to do with land or metaltalin for that matter. It's an obligation on the person to repay, which is going to end up coming from either land or metaltalin, but it's not firas shibud karkos because the land is indirectly related to his shibud haguf that he has to pay back. And these exact same two categories appear in the halachas of why the collector is collecting. If it's because of the principle of shibuda Raisa, which teaches that the borrower's possessions are all leaned to repay this loan... So then that would certainly include his land because everything he owns is included in the shibud, in the lien of repaying. And Rab proves this because even if the borrower sold the possession, so now someone else owns it, the lakuchos, still the lender could come and collect from that. So we see that shibuda do circumvents the actual borrower, and it's an obligation which is on his property, whether he owns it or not, whether it's land or metaltalin, So that would certainly be a case where the obligation to repay also includes the land. But on the other hand, if we're evaluating the obligation which is on the borrower to repay, the shibut that he has... So that is not on the land, it does not include karka, because it's an obligation the Lova has that he has to repay. He can choose to repay either from Karka or from Metaltalin, but we cannot say that the Karka is obligated to repay, and therefore we can't call this a case of Kfiras Shibud Karkos because there is no lien on the land. It's just an obligation on the Lova himself to repay however he wants. So now understanding the two aspects of the loan, Rab Chaim explains that when the borrower denies that he owns money, primarily what he's doing is he's denying the shibud, which is on himself that he has to repay, which, as we just explained, is not kfiras shibud karkos. So that's why if the loan was done without a star, he would be high of a shvuos We do not view that as a shvuah which denied repaying land, kfiras shibud karkos, because primarily he's denying his own obligation to repay. On the other hand, when there is a shtar, so they wrote the loan repayment in the shtar, so that is considered kfiras shibud karkos for two reasons. First of all, because the shtar, as soon as it's handed over, creates some sort of kinyan, a transference, of the land that it's included in the Shibud. So when he goes ahead and denies that Shibud, he is denying the land which was included in it. And second of all, in order to deny any repayment, the borrower also has to deny what was written in the Shtar, which included the land. So he's denying that any of his possessions, both metalin and the Karka, which was included in the Shtar, are obligated to repay this. So, he is denying explicitly a loan which should have been collected from land. So that's why, in the case of the shtar, it is considered kfiras shibud karkos. And there would be no punishment of shvus apikadon. So this approach that Rab Chaim develops would explain the Shitas Rambam, because as we saw, he disagrees with Tosos' approach, limiting the cases where there's no shvus apikadon. The Rambam holds in all cases without a shtar, there's no shvus Not only when it comes to loans, but even when it comes to other financial transactions which the person denies. So this would explain the Rambam's expansive view of this, because when a person denies a loan or a sale or some other financial obligation they have they're primarily denying that they owe that money i haven't really woken up until i've had my mcdonald's breakfast deal and i know this is true because before breakfast i put my phone in the refrigerator and couldn't find the keys that were already in my hand Nothing gets the morning going like the first sip of an iced coffee. Get any size and any flavor for 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. McDonald's. I'm loving it. So even though the derivative of it, indirectly, it would affect whether they have to pay back with their land, but essentially they are denying a shibud Haguf, their own personal obligation, and that's not the case of kfirah shibud Karkos. So that's why there is Shavuos Apikadon in all those cases, and we can read the Gemara literally without having to add any stipulations. So this is Rav Chaim's approach to explain the Shittasar Rambam. Basically, he's articulating two different aspects of the loan or financial transaction. And he suggests that for each halachic concept, we have to see what perspective we're using here. And so far, he's addressed the issue of a Malveh with witnesses versus a Malveh with a Shtar. Now, using this approach, Rav Chaim explains a Rambam on a totally different topic but he's going to use the same basic approach to resolve it. So we're going to move in paragraph 3 to that totally new topic. This is based on a Gemara in Babakam and Dav Kuvdalet. The Gemara is discussing the obligation to pay a chomesh if somebody makes a false vow. In addition to the karban, they also have to pay a chomesh. And the specific issue the Gemara wants to know is if somebody made that false oath, and then they died. Do their heirs, the yorshim, have to pay the chomesh? So the Gemara quotes from a brisa that derives from the pasuk of Asher Guzal, Asher Ashak, that it's only the person themselves who stole, but the yorshim don't have to pay because Hulo Guzal, Velo Ashak, they did not steal the original object which started this whole chain of events. So yorshim do not have to pay chomesh, and the brysa says that would even be in a case where the son, the heir himself, had made the false vow, but since he didn't steal, he would not have to pay the chomesh. So then the Gemara asks, Why doesn't the son have to pay the extra fifth for his own vow that he made? Forget about the father's vow. He himself now made a false vow, so that should obligate him to pay an extra fifth. So the Gemara goes through a few steps to figure out the case here. First it says, The stolen object was used up by the time the father died, so that's why the son does not have to pay an extra fifth. Then the Gemara says, Well, if the object is gone, he shouldn't have to pay anything. So the Gemara says, there are possessions of the father that are intended to be collected, which is a way to say that there's karka. So since this son inherited land from his father, that needs to be used to pay up this debt. Then the Gemara asks, even though there's karka, but still it's a milve this is an oral loan, and the halacha is that a milve can't be collected from Yorshim, so why does he have to pay? So the Gemara says, the father had already gone to court, so this was not a milva alpe, this was a court decision that he has to pay. So that's why he has to pay. Then the Gemara says, well, if he went to court, so then the son should have to pay the Chomesh. So the final answer the Gemara says is that since we're dealing with Karka here, the son would have to pay from land. So his denial was kfiras Shibud Karkos. And as we know, the general principle is that in a case of kfiras Shibud Karkos, there is no punishment of Shavuos HaPikadon, which is what would have obligated the Chomesh. So that's why there is no Chomesh here because of the usual rule that there's no Shvos HaPikadon punishment on Shibud Karkos. Now, the problem is that the Rishonim asks, and the Shittim Kubetzis quotes this question, why do we need the Pesach that the Gemara began with originally to say that the son wouldn't have to pay the Chomesh if the conclusion of the Gemara is that he doesn't pay because of Kfirah Shibud Karkos? Once we establish that this is the usual case of kfiras Karkos, then of course there's no Chomesh, there's no Shavuos Kodon in that case. So why do we need the Pasuk of Asher, Gozal of Asher, Ashak, from which we originally derived that he wouldn't have to pay the Chomesh? What's the point of that Pasuk? So the rush in the Shitim Kubetzes answers that we actually don't need that Pasuk. It's not a real drusha. We don't learn this halacha out from the Pasuk. It's an asmachta. It's just a way to remember it or to tie it into the Torah. But the Pasuk itself is not the source for this halacha. The source is because it's Kfir Hashibud Karkos. The problem is, though, that the Gemara earlier in Baba Kama, and Daf Zayin, indicates clearly that this is not just an Asmachta, because the Gemara says that we learned something else out from the Pasik of Asher Gazal, and then the Gemara asks, how could you learn something else out when you have to learn out that a yoreish doesn't pay a fit? So you see from the Gemara that this is a full drasha, and it's the source for this halakha. So there's another answer Abhain quotes, and this is in Rabbeinu Peretz. And he says that we need the Pasuk for a more specific case where the father made the false oath, and then the son admitted that the father swore falsely. So in that case, the oath was made at a time when the father was denying both Karka and Metaltolin. So that's why we would have thought that the son should pay the extra fifth when he admits that the father's oath was false. But according to this approach, in the case where the son himself made the false oath, so that's clearly Kfirah Karkos, and we don't need any Pusuk to tell us that he doesn't have to pay the extra fifth. So those are the two approaches in the Rishonim. Rab Chaim points out though that the Rambam disagrees with both of these approaches because when he presents the Gemara in Helcho's Gzela, Paragzayin, Halacha Gimel, so he says as follows, that a person only pays a fifth on their own act of stealing. But if they have to pay because of someone else, because of their father, then they do not pay a fifth. For example, Let's say the father stole or had to pay other people. And the son knew this, and then he denied it, and the son made a false shvua. And then he admitted that he swore falsely. So in that case, he only has to pay the value of the object, but he does not pay the extra fifth. Shinemar, Asher Gozal. What he stole, Al-Gizlo, Hu-Mosif Chomesh. For what he stole, he has to add an extra fifth. The Eno Mosif Chomesh, Al-Gezal Avi. But he does not have to add a fifth for something that his father stole. So the Rambam goes against both approaches. First of all, he derives this halacha from the Pasuk. So it's not an Asmachta. It's the source for the halacha. And second of all, he derives the case where the son made a false oath and there we need the pasuk to tell us that he's exempt from the extra fifth. So unlike Rabbeinu Peretz, who said that if the son swore falsely, it's a case of Kfir Karkos. Only where the father swore falsely and the son admitted do we need the pasuk. the Rambam says that even where the son swore falsely, we need a pasuk to tell us that the son would be exempt from the Chomesh. So the question is, why isn't he exempt? Because it's Kfir Karkos. They only would have been able to collect from the land So when he denied it, he was denying land. So anyways, there shouldn't be a Chomesh. Why do we need a Pesach to tell us that? Says Rav Chaim very brilliantly that based on the approach he developed, we can explain this Rambam too. Because when the son denies that he owes this person money, he's actually denying two things. He's denying that his father owed them money. And he's also denying that the possessions he inherited from his father, which are now in his ownership are obligated to pay this debt. Now, these two denials are different. When it comes to the son's possessions that he's denying, so he has no personal obligation to repay his father's debt. There's no halakha that he has to make good on what his father owed other people. The only obligation he has is that since he inherited possessions from his father, those possessions need to pay up debts that were obligated on them. So that's a purely shibud nechassim. It's not an obligation on the sun, it's on the objects, on the possessions. And since those objects include land, so obviously it's shibud karkos. The land is indebted to pay up. And if the sun denies it, that would clearly be a case of kfiras shibud karkos, and there would be no korban or chomesh on that denial. But when it comes to the second aspect of his denial, that his father owed the money, so that is a shibur haguf, the father himself had to repay the debt. And even though the father died, but that obligation has not disappeared because the son inherited it. The same way an heir steps into his father's estate to take over it, he also inherits the debts and the obligations that the father owed. So that personal obligation that the father had now transfers to the son. And in addition, the son could choose to pay this debt with whatever possessions he wants. So by denying that aspect of his obligation... He's not only denying land. He's denying the more primary shibud HaGuf. And as we saw before, when it comes to shibud HaGuf, that's the primary obligation. It can be paid off using Karka, but we can't call that Kfiras shibud Karkos because he's denying the whole personal obligation. And from that aspect of it, the son should have been obligated in the Korban and the Chomesh like any other denial. So that's why we need the Pasuk, because that aspect of the son's denial is not included in Kfir would Karkos. It's the Pasuk which tells us that he still does not have to pay the Chomesh in that case. So this answers the Gemara and Babakama. And the Rambam, the Gemara in Babakama is addressing the aspect that the son denied his own shibud, that his possessions are obligated to pay back this obligation. So for that, the Gemara says that's a classic case of Kfirah's shibud karkoz because the collection would have been from land. But when it comes to the other aspect, that he's also denying that his father owed money, which is a shibud haguf, so that's not Kfirah's shibud karkoz, for that we still need the pasuk, and that's why the Rambam adds in that the pasuk is necessary to totally absolve him from any Chomesh in this case. And Rab Chaim says this is the same approach that he's been developing. We see from this analysis of the Rambam that in a regular case of shibud HaGuf, it's not considered kfiras shibud Karkoz because the personal obligation to pay is the primary obligation. The land and the Metaltalin are just the derivatives of that obligation. So in the same way, the Rambam holds that a loan With witnesses, even if it could be collected from land, it's still not considered a kfirah shibud karkos because it's primarily a shibud haguf. But now in paragraph four, Rab Chaim backs away a little bit from this. And he says, this notion that the father's shibud haguf transfers to the son and when he denies that, it's a regular denial, not shibud karkos is not clear because you could say that even though it's true that the father's Shibu Guf transfers to the son, but the denial of that obligation does not create Shavu So it's unclear that that would be enough to make the son obligated in the Karban and Chomesh of Shavu such that we would need a Pasuk to exempt him. So if so, we're back to the question, why do we need this Pasuk? If anyways, this is a case of Kfirah's Shibud Karkoz and the father's Shibud Gulf is not enough to create a Shavu So in order to explain this, Rabbi Chaim asks a very fundamental question. Why is it that when someone denies that they owe money, we consider that Kfirah Shibud Karkos when they're also denying that their Metaltolin has to pay? So they're denying both Karka and Metaltolin, and we should say that they're obligated in the Shavuos because of the Metaltolin denial. Forget about the Karka that they denied. Why do we focus on the Karka as the primary denial? So, Rab Chaim explains that the overall principle of Tfirah Shibut Karkos is based on the idea that a person is not punished for Shavuos HaPikodon until they deny everything thoroughly. So, they have to deny that none of their possessions are obligated to repay, which means not only is their Metaltolin not obligated to repay, but also the Karka is not included in this. So, since it's the denial of the land which completes the denial, so that's why we call it Firas Shibud Karkos. But all of that is only in the case of Shibud Nechasim, where in order to have a denial, you have to deny that any of your possessions are obligated to repay this debt. But when it comes to the Shibud Haguf, it works the other way. There is no combination between the Karka and the Metaltalin. So when the person denies the shibur haguf, even if it includes both karka and metaltolin, we view them separately and we're going to focus on the fact that they denied metaltolin and it's going to create shuos apikodon even if there was karka involved in this situation. So in addition to the earlier distinctions Rabhai made between Shibud Nechassim and Shibud Agulf, he's now adding that when it comes to Shibud Nechassim, there's a combination between the Metaltalin and the Karka. And when someone denies that they owe money, we view it as if they're denying Karka, even though there's also Metaltalin. but... The completed picture was the denial of the karka, and therefore it would be a case of kfirah shibud karkos. But when it comes to shibud haguf, there is no combination. So denying both karka and metaltolin are going to be treated differently. So there's going to be a shvuos because of the denial of the metaltolin. So that explains very nicely this whole concept Rab Chaim's been developing that if the son denies his father's shibud haguf, that would also create. A apikadon. And the explanation of this is because even though the father himself is not here, so why should the son end up with a Shavuos for denying his father's shibura Aguf? But it's not about who had the shibura Aguf. It's that once there's a Shibur Aguf in the situation, so then denying it means that we evaluate the metaltalin on its own. So that's why when the son denies his father Shibut Aguf, we view it as a denial of Metaltalin, and there is a Shavu Asapi So Reb Chaim is obviously saying a lot here, but to try to unpack it, first is he's extending his whole distinction between Shibut Aguf and Shibud Nechasim to the distinction between the father's obligation to repay and the son's obligation to repay. And he's analyzing that the father is a shibud aguf, which transfers on some level to the son, whereas the son's autonomous obligation to repay is a shibud nechasim because he inherited his father's possessions. And this ties into the original distinction he made that a shibud nechasim is kfira shibud karkos, whereas a shibud aguf is not. And in addition, he's adding a very beautiful and a very fundamental concept to this whole discussion, which is an explanation of why Shibud Aguf and Shibud Nechassim function differently. Originally, he explained it because the Shibud Nechassim devolves inherently on the objects, so that includes land, whereas the Shibud Aguf is primarily on the person, it just the way to fulfill it is by paying with possessions. But now he adds another element to this whole distinction, which is that shibud nechasim creates a combination between the land and the metaltalin, And when the person denies it, they have to be denying everything. So that's why we look at the karka as the primary, because without denying the karka, there's not a full denial. But the shibud haguf does not create that sort of combination between karka and metaltolin because it's primarily on the person. So when they deny anything, we view that on its own. So by denying karka and metaltalim, we would isolate the metaltolin and then punish them with shvuas apikaddin. And again, the underlying theme of this Rab Chaim is that the question of what's considered kfira shivud karkos is very contextual. You have to know the perspective of the case that you're dealing with in halacha to figure out the relationship between the karka and the metaltolin. Now, Rav Chaim's going to proceed to a third case with regards to Ksuba, and his approach will answer another Rambam. But before we go there... I want to just go through some of the later discussion about Rab Chaim and we usually reserve this for the end after we've gone through the whole piece from Rab Chaim but because this piece and this discussion is complicated I'm worried that if we go on to the next thing and then try to come back to the second case it will be even more confusing so I'd like to go out of order a little bit and discuss some of the later discussion on this second point from Rab Chaim and then we'll finish up with Rab Chaim's third point. In the Mesifta Gemaras on Babakam and the Yalkut Biur, and they have a nice discussion of this, and they quote that the Minchaschinoch in Mitzvah Chav Tes Osiud Bais asks the same question as Rab Chaim on the Rambam in Hilchus Gzela. Why does he say that the son's exemption from paying Chomesh comes from the Pasuk when the Gemara says that it comes because it's a case of Kfirah's Shibud Karkos? But the Minchas Chinuch adds a very nice point to this question. And he says that the Gemara seems to be saying that only in a case where the father stole... So the son has to pay back from land, that's when if he denies it, it would be kfirah shibut karkos because the repayment only comes from land in that case. But if the father had borrowed money and it would be the type of case where the son has to repay from land or metaltolin, then according to the Gemara, the son should have to pay the chomesh because that's not Kfira shibud karkoz. That's a case of denying also metaltolin. But the Rambam explicitly says when he quotes the halacha from that sugya that whether the father stole it or whether the father borrowed it, so he owed money, in either case, the son does not have to pay chomesh for his false vow Because no one pays Chomesh unless they started off the whole story. So if the father did the original action, then the son never pays Chomesh. So that goes beyond what the Gemara said. It includes also a case where the father borrowed money, and there doesn't seem to be justification for the Rambam's exemption in that case based on the Gemara. The Gemara never exempted that case, neither from the Pasuk nor from the logic that it's Kfir shibud Karkos. And the Minchas Khinuch has a few other details also that don't square up between the Rambam and the Gemara. And he writes that he's amazed that none of the classical mefarshim on the Rambam asked this question. So, Reb Chaim's approach to the Rambam would answer the Minchaschinoch's questions too, because the Minchaschhinoch is viewing this as an either or that the Gemara is saying that the sun is exempt from Chomesh because of Kfiras Shibud Karkos, and the Rambam is saying that it's from the Pasuk. And these two approaches are at odds with each other and they're even coming out practically different. But according to Rab Chaim, the Rambam is building on the Gemara. So in a case of Kfiras Shibud Karkos, where the sun is not obligated because of his own denial of his own Shibud Nechassim, that technically he's obligated to pay back from the possessions he inherited and he denied that. So once we get around that problem and there's no Shavu Asapikadon because of that denial, so in addition we have to get around the father's Shibud Haguf, and for that the pasuk comes in, but in a case where there is no kfiras shibud karkos, meaning the denial was on metaltalin, then of course the son would be obligated in chomesh regardless of the pasuk because of his own denial. So according to Rab Chaim, the Rambam and the Gemara are complementing each other, and of course it's true, like the Minchas Chinoch saying that if it would be a case of kfiras metaltalin, if it's not a case of kfiras shibud karkos, so then there would be shvuas in that case, and the Rambam. Would also agree with that. Now, there is another approach to this Rambam from Rabhaim's Chaim's student, Rabbi Isra Zalman Meltzer, in the Eben HaAzal, on the Rambam in Hilchus Gzela, Perak Zion. And he suggests to explain this Rambam based on a view in the Rishonim which holds that if Shibuddha do Raisa. Then the person could also include their metaltolin. So, ordinarily, it would only apply that the lien is on this person's land. But if the borrower explicitly includes their metaltolin, so they could do that and it would be mishubad and the loan could be collected from their metaltolin. But if Shibuda is not Doraisa, then they cannot. Choose to include their metaltolin in the shibud of this loan. So that's one view in the Rishonim. Based on that, says Ravistar Zalman, if the Rambam holds like that view, then there's a distinction between the Gemara and the Rambam. The Rambam holds do adoraisa, so a person could include metaltolin in the shibud. So the Rambam is including a case where the father explicitly said that his metaltolin is part of the lien. And since that works, the son is no longer denied denying karka, because he's also denying metaltolin. So that's why we need a pasuk to say that the son doesn't have to pay chomesh. And the reason the Gemara says a different approach, it says that it's kfir shibud karkos, not the pasuk, is because it holds either shibud drabanan or that you can't include the metaltolin in the shibud. So therefore the principle of kfir shibud karkos ...tells us that in all cases the son won't have to pay Chomesh. So that's the debate between the Rambam and the Gemara. And in the Mesif Gemaras, they point out that again... ...this would answer them in Haschinov's question because that's why the Rambam is including cases which are not in the Gemara. There is a debate going on, because the Gemara is talking about only specific cases where the shibud is only on land, not on metaltalin. That's when the son doesn't have to pay Chomesh. But the Gemara does not discuss cases where there would also be a shibud on the Metaltolin, whereas the Rambam is including those cases, and he says that the son is always exempt from Chomesh based on the pasuk. And finally, there's a third approach to this Rambam from Rav Shach. This is at the end of Avi Ezri in Chelek Dalid. There's a long letter that he wrote to Rav Isser Zalman. And he also discusses this Rambam, and he has a very nice suggestion, which follows along the path of Rav Chaim that the Rambam is complementing the Gemara. And the way he formulates it is that when the son denies that his father stole this object, That's not kfiras Shibud Karkos, because he's denying that his father stole Metaltolin, even though the payment would come from Karka, but the actual denial is squarely on a Metaltolin case that his father didn't steal the Metaltolin. So he should have to pay the Chomesh. So that's exactly why we need a Pasek to tell us that he doesn't have to pay Chomesh even in that case, which is not kfiras Shibud Karkos. Now on the other hand, what the Gemara is saying that you need Khi Karkos is that when the son denies that he has to pay it back, so that is a denial on Karka, because he only would have had to pay back from Karka. So he's stealing at that time from Karka so that's why the Gemara needs to apply the principle that if it's Kfira shibud karkos, then there would be no chomesh. So they're both working together. Like Rav Chaim said, the denial of the father's obligation is not shibud karkos. Rav Chaim had a more Lumdisha conceptual formulation of this because the father's is a shibud aguf. Rav Shach just says simply because the father stole metaltalin. So for that, we need the Pesach to tell us that the son doesn't pay Chomesh. But for the son's denial of his own obligation, which would have come from Karka, there he doesn't pay Chomesh based on the general principle of Tfirashibut Karkos. And again, in the Masifta Gemara, they point out that this would enter them in Chaschinoch in the same way that in a case where the son actually did deny on his own so, then of course, he would have to pay the Chomesh. Even the Rambam who quotes the Pasuk would agree that if the son denied on his own that he has to pay for Metaltalin, then of course he would have to pay Chomesh. So, to summarize this little bit, the questions Rab Chaim asks on the Rambam and Hilchos Gzela, he was already preceded by the Minchas Chinoch and Mitzvah kuf chav Tes. And Rab Chaim has an approach to it, and Mibes Midrosho of Rab Chaim, there's two other approaches from Rav Isser Zalman and Rav Shach. Now, Rav Chaim's approach is of course based on his whole general approach to the issue of Kfir Shibut Karkoz, which he's been developing first in the Rambam, which differentiates between a loan with witnesses versus a loan with a Shtar, and then second in this Rambam with regard to the son paying a Chomesh. Now Reb Chaim Musta a third case, which is also going to be resolved with the same approach, and that is in Ksubis. This material he's already gone through in Hilchus Ishus. The Rambam in Hilchus Ishus Perektes, Zayin Halacha Chafhe, discusses a case where the wife says that she was a psula, a virgin, when they got married, and her ksuba should have been two hundred. And the Baal or his heirs say that she was a Baula and her Kshubah was only a hundred. So that falls into the case of Modab Mitzas where one person says you owe me a hundred and the other person says no I owe you 50. And there we have a shvuah do Raisa of a Modab Mitzas. So the Rambam says that that would be the same thing here. If the husband is alive, she can force him to make a shvuah do Raisa because this is a case of Modab Mitzas. The Rivid asks, How could you have a Shvuah De'Oraisa? This is a case of Kfiras Shibud Karkos. In this case, she would have collected from land, and the husband denied the land. So, how could there be a Shvuah De'Oraisa of Modeb and Mikzas? So, that's the Rivid's powerful question on the Rambam. And even more problematic is that the Rambam himself in Hilchoshvuah's Parakir Aleph, Halachir Aleph, agrees with the Rivid's approach here. Because he says, In a case where a woman had one witness who was going to testify that her husband died and she could collect her ksuba. And the witness swore to her that he doesn't know that testimony. And it turns out that he lied. So he would have to pay the punishment of Shavuos Ha'edus because otherwise she would have gotten her ksuba. Says the Rambam, that's only if she was going to collect her Ksuba from Metaltolin. But if she was going to collect the Ksuba from land, then it would be putter from Shuvah Sa'edus, because that is a case which involves land, so when the witness made his false vow it concerned land, and we don't punish him for that. So you see that the Rambam himself agrees with the Raivid's idea that a Ksuba is fundamentally Shibud karkos, and you're not going to be punished for Shavu HaSaidos or Shavu pikadon So if so, why does the Rambam hold that there's a shvua HaModeb in in the case where the husband agrees to partial payment of the Ksuba? So Rabheim Chaim suggests that there's a simple answer. The Rambam in Hilch Ishus Paretaz Zayn Allah that Chazal made a takana that a widow can only collect her ksuba from land. So the implication of that sentence is that a widow can only collect her ksuba from land, but a grusha, if they get divorced, then she could collect both from land and metaltalin. In other words, the decree that a ksuba can only be collected from land only applies to a widow. So that would answer this contradiction in the Rambam very easily. In the case where the husband is making a vow, obviously she's divorced because the husband is alive, so she can't be a widow. So in that case, she can collect her k'suba both from land or from italtolin. That's why the Rambam doesn't say that it's a case of Kfirah Shibud Karkoz. He just says that it would be an automatic shvua O'Risa. But in the other Rambam, in the case of the one witness, where she wants him to testify that her husband died, so obviously there she's a widow because her husband died. So that's where the Rambam clarifies that in a usual case of a widow where she can only collect from land, then there would be no Shvua raisa. But in the case where she could collect from Metaltolin, which would be in one of two unusual situations, either the husband explicitly included Metaltolin in her collection, or she went ahead and grabbed Metaltolin before coming to ask anybody, based on the Gemara in Shvua lamid Beis. So in those cases, the Rambam clarifies that it's possible to have a Shvua Asa- even Midoraisa, because the case concerns Metaltolin. But that's why the Rambam only clarifies this whole issue when it comes to the Shavu Eidos, because there she's a widow, so the usual case would be that she only collects her Ksuba from land, but in the case of the Grusha, of course she can collect from either land and Metaltolin. So this would all make sense. The problem, though, is that the Magid Mishnah quotes from the Rashba that there was a different version of the Rambam's texts, which said, shlo tigbe ha-isha. Instead of saying that a widow can't collect her ksuba from Metaltolin, it says that any woman cannot collect her ksuba from Metaltolin. So instead of the word almana, it said isha, which would mean both a widow or a divorcee. Nobody can collect their ksuba from Metaltolin. So according to that variant edition of the Rambam, that approach that no woman collects her ksuba from a We're back to the issue. Why does the rambam just say simply that in the case of the grusha, if the husband admits to owing her half of what she demanded, it would be a shvuah do oraisa, mota when that's a case of kfira shibud karkos, like the Ravid asks? Says Rab Chaim that according to the approach he's been developing throughout, that it depends on the perspective, so then that would answer the Rambam in Hilchus Ishus too, And that is, there's a basic distinction between a Grusha and an Almana still. Even though in both cases, they only collect from land. So it's not a practical distinction. But in the case of the Grusha, so the husband is still alive. So she is demanding that he pay her the Ksuba which is like a shibud haguf. So even though the Chazal said she can only collect her suba from land, so it should be like Fira's shibud karkos, but that would only be if we're evaluating the shibud nechassim, then we would say that since it's only from land, then of course it's shibud karkos. But since we're evaluating the husband's obligation, which is a shibud haguf, so that is not considered Fira's shibud karkos, like a regular shibud haguf, where we don't consider it Firashibud Karkos, because we say that the primary obligation is on the person himself, and what he's denying is on himself, and also he could choose, if he wants to, to pay his debt from Mithaltalin. So those two factors make it that it's not Kfirah Karkos, and he would have to make a Shavu Ado Raisa of Moda So that's why the Rambam says that when he's alive, it would be a Shavu al Raisa. And as support for his approach, Rab Chaim quotes a very interesting hafla in Hilchus Ksubus, Simensadi Vov. Vav. This is a rare reference to an achron in Chidush Rabbi Nochaim HaLevi and his only reference to the hafla, who was one of the three rabbeim of the Chasim sofer. So the hafla says that the shibud haguf of the husband to pay the ksuba is also on the metaltalin. Meaning, even though the Shibud Nechassim of the Ksuba is only on the land that he owns, but his own personal Shibud HaGuf extends to everything, however he can pay her. So that, of course, would fit in very nicely with Rab Chaim's approach, that when the husband is alive and he denies part of her claim, we cannot call that Kfirah Shibud Karkos because his Shibud HaGuf makes it that he's denying also the metaltolin, and therefore he has to make a shvua da'oraisa on that part. But in the case of the shvua sa'edus, the one witness, so there it's talking about where the husband died, so there's no more shivu of the husband, her claim is against his yorshim who inherited his property, So she can only demand the nechassim that those yorshim have. So since it's a case of shibud nechassim, that's why the Rambam clarifies that only in a case where she's able to collect from the metaltolin would it be a Shavu Ado Otherwise, it's Kfirah Shibud Karkos. So that makes sense in line with the general attitude towards Yorshim, that they don't have a Shibud Aguf, they only inherit their father's possessions, and those possessions have to settle the debts against them. But when we're dealing with Shibud Nechasim, so then it has to be a claim from Metaltalin. if it's from Karka, then it's Kfirah Shibud Karkos. So according to Rab Chaim's approach, there is a distinction between a grusha and an almana, but it's not the practical one as to whether or not she can collect from metaltolin. It's a conceptual one as to whether or not her claim is against the shibud aguf of the living husband or the shibud nechassim of the heirs who inherited his property. And Rab Chaim ends with one final, very brilliant point to show that this is the Rambam's approach. The Gemara in is and Lamed Bez quotes from Abaya that in aid Sota, so a woman was put into sota by her husband. He said, don't be alone with someone. So in that case, if there's even one witness who saw her have relations with that man, then she's prohibited to her husband, and she loses her ksuba. So if the husband tried to get that witness to testify on his behalf that she had relations with the man, and he lied about it, so then he certainly is the deshvua sa'edus. And then similarly, second, the Gemara quotes from Rav Papa, that in Eid Misa, meaning if one witness knows that a woman's husband died, so again he would be believed and she could collect her ksuba. So if she tried to get him to testify on her behalf and he lied, so then he would be chayev a shvua So the Gemara asks, why should there be a shvua in that case? when she can only collect her Ksuba from Karka, and we don't apply shvuas haedus to a case of Karka. So the Gemara answers, no, we're talking about a specific case, the Tfisa the Metaltolin, where she grabbed the Metaltolin before she came to Bezdin. So if this witness would testify that her husband died, she would be able to keep the Metaltolin that she already has. So that's why this is not a case of Karka, but it's a case of Metaltolin. So there's a very short tosos, a one-liner, and he says that this answer of the Gemara that we're talking about, Metaltalin, not karka, Also goes back on the first case of Abaya, where the husband was trying to get the witness to testify that the wife committed adultery and then he wouldn't have to pay the Ksuba. So you could ask the same thing, that this is a case concerning Karka. So according to Tosos, the answer would be the same. The Gemara is talking about both cases, that it's talking about a case where she already grabbed Metaltolin. So the dispute is over whether she can keep the Metaltolin and it doesn't have to do with Karka. So according to Tosos, that's how to explain this Gemara. But says Rab Chaim, if you look in the Rambam in Hilchus Perak Yud, which we quoted before. So in Halacha Ches there, he quotes the issue of the Eid Sota, who saw her have adultery. And there he makes no mention of the issue that it has to relate to Metaltolin. He just simply records that Halacha that the is Chayiv for Shvuos Ha'edus. And then three Halachas later in Halacha Yud Aleph, There he records the halakha of the one witness who knows her husband died. And there he clarifies that it has to relate to metaltolin and not karka. So the Rambam seems to clearly disagree with Tosos' approach. And he holds that when the Gemara clarified that it's a case where she grabbed the metaltolin, so the dispute is over her keeping the metaltolin, not karka, that's only in the Eid Misa, the witness who knows her husband died. But in the case of the Eid Sota, who saw her commit adultery, there across the board, there's Shavu Edus, even if she didn't grab Metaltali. Why should that be the case? Says Rab Chaim, this fits in beautifully with his whole approach in the Rambam, that there's a difference between whether the husband is alive or not. In the case of the Sota, where the husband is alive and she committed adultery, so there the dispute is over his Shibud HaGuf, which, as we explained, is not kfiras Shibud Karkos. So that's why, across the board, whether or not she grabbed metaltalin, it's going to create a case of Shavu because it's not kfiras Shibud Karkos, it's a Shibud Aguf case. But in the case of the witness who knows her husband died, so now that he died, there's no Shibud Aguf, we're talking about the Yorshim, his heirs. so that's a Shibud Nechasim, so there it has to specifically relate to metaltolin because if it has to do with karka, then it's shibud nechasim on a karka, which is kfirah shibud karkos. So again, this idea of the Rambam that when it comes to the eight sota, since the husband is alive and the dispute is over his shibud haguf, we do not consider that kfirah shibud karkos. That fits in with the whole approach chaim has been developing throughout this piece, that kfirah shibud karkos, is only in cases of Shibud Nechasim. But in Shibud Haguf, then that transcends the Karka, and we would not call that Kfiras Shibud Karkos. And that explains three distinct issues in the Rambam. One is the distinction between a loan with witnesses versus a loan with a shtar. The second is why the Yorshim, the heirs, don't have to pay Chomesh, on what their father stole and falsely swore about. And the third is why there's a distinction between the ksuba that's collected when the husband's alive versus after he died.